1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye for the Spirit of God, and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil, spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them suffer according to the will of God, commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Pastor Tim. Thank you, Richard. All right. So as we continue to explore God's word together this morning, I invite you to open your Bibles with me, please, to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to begin reading with verse 1. Uh, and as you're turning there, I want you to consider this question. When we share the gospel with someone, is there any way in which we can do them a dis disservice? Or when we're uh, leading, after having led someone to faith in Christ, is there any uh, way that we might do a disservice to them in, in how we uh, proceed after that point? Two of these disservices, if you will, immediately come to mind for me. And the first is this. We do a great disservice to people when we share the good news of Jesus with them if we paint a rosy picture of what the Christian life is like. If we make it all unicorns and sunshine and roses and tell them that after you repent, confess your sins, repent, and receive Jesus Christ, uh, life is going to work out perfectly for you. There aren't going to be any problems or issues. Uh, if we do that... And it can be tempting to portray the Christian life in that light as one rich blessing after another, uh, a life where there's no problems or suffering that's ever experienced. But the trouble is this. That's not reality. You know that from your own experience. Some of you have walked with Christ for decades. You know that hardships and trials come into the life of a believer uh, as well as unbelievers alike. When someone comes to faith, they're moving from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And that's something we need to keep in mind. Because the scriptures tell us that the powers and principalities of this dark world have set, set themselves up in opposition to God. Uh, they've also set themselves against the people of God. Which means when someone uh, receives new life in Jesus Christ, they're moving from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And there's going to be opposition. Uh, Satan will seek to disrail uh, or shipwreck our faith, to cause people to doubt uh, and so forth. Um, and when we paint an unrealistic picture of the Christian life, we're setting people up for failure and discouragement, disillusionment. And when troubles or trials come their way, as they will, they feel that they've been lied to by those who've shared Jesus with them. And the faith of so many people has been shipwrecked 
Because the gospel they've received gave them a false sense of what being a Christian means. And then when they're faced with the unexpected suffering and sorrow that comes, they have no framework in which to make sense of it. So I'm not saying that as we share Christ, we start out with, uh, you know, your life is going to be difficult, it's going to be hard, there's trials and temptations that are going to come your way. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is we share the gospel with them. As we tell them about the Christian life, we don't want to set them up for failure. We don't want to paint a picture that's not realistic. Uh, scripture, as we've seen previously, says that all who want to live godly lives for Christ will experience persecution and hardship. The second disservice that comes to mind is this. It's a fail, failure to disciple those who have received Christ as Lord and Savior. And so Andrew talked a little bit about this in regards to camp, this new position he's hiring for, discipleship and follow-up and so forth. Uh, and the idea is to build into the lives, particularly of those who have come to faith in Christ. As he said, to get them connected with churches, with uh, youth groups, with uh, children's clubs and so forth. The idea is to continue to build into someone's life. And one of the most amazing experiences we can have is being used by God to lead someone to salvation, to be a part of what God is doing as they move from death to life, and to know that God has been working through you in his amazing grace. But I think the flip side of that is this. One of the most discouraging things in ministry is to see people fail to mature in their faith. See, when we first receive Christ, Scripture uses the, the terminology of birth. We've been born again, not physically, but spiritually. And we begin this new life of faith as infants. But we're not meant to stay that way. As Peter writes, like newborn babies, we're to crave pure spiritual milk so that by it we may grow up in our salvation. Years ago, I came across an article on orphanages in Romania. Uh, and it was absolutely heartbreaking. If you know anything about them, you know where I'm headed with this. The number of children consigned to these orphanages is vast, but the workers are terribly few. And what this means for those children, those infants, was that with the exception of getting their diapers changed or at feeding time, they rarely, if ever, felt the loving touch of another human being. There's no one to encourage them. There's no one to comfort them. There was no one to build into their lives. And in fact, the result was that the majority of these children, they didn't learn even to crawl. And because they didn't learn to crawl, they never learned to walk. And they weren't learning to speak either. Developmentally, they're way behind where you'd expect them to be. And it was all because there was no one to love them, to nurture them, to encourage them, to guide them. And I want to present that to you as something of a picture of what happens if we don't uh, take to heart the words of Christ to make disciples of people. Go into all the world, right? Make disciples of all nations. Uh, if we're, it's not enough just to lead someone to faith. I mean, that's the starting point, right? Start with relationship, leading them to faith. But we need to continue to build into their lives after that. Uh, because when we fail to do that, we are, in a sense, contributing to the stunting of their spiritual growth. Uh, as those children in the orphanages in Romania uh, were not being nurtured by those around them, uh, they were suffering as a result. The same thing happens when we don't come alongside new believers and encourage them and walk with them and, and help raise them up in Christ. And what we're going to see this morning as we get into the scriptures is that Paul understood the dangers that both these things, uh, the potential danger they posed to the new believers in Thessalonica. 
And because he was motivated by a genuine love for them, he was going to do everything he could to help them understand and to grow in their faith. He may have been forced to leave Thessalonica because of the persecution, but you see, his heart was still burdened for those that he'd left behind. And with, so with those things in mind, let's begin reading chapter 3, verse 1. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. But Timothy has now just come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we are encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you're standing firm in the Lord. So as I read that passage, one of the first things that comes to mind for me is this. Paul had been completely open with the Thessalonians regarding what living for Christ might mean for them in terms of opposition from the world. And keep in mind that those who are suffering in Thessalonica... Uh, they were suffering opposition from those who displeased God, as we read a couple of weeks ago, and who were hostile to all men. Uh, these folks made every effort to keep the Gentiles from hearing the gospel message and so being saved. You see, the kingdom of God, again, it is the kingdom of light. And Jesus declared, the spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, Jesus had come to seek and to save what was lost. He'd come to set people free from bondage to sin, to break the chains that kept people in hopelessness and despair, and to bring new life, abundant life, to those who've been born again by the grace of God. Jesus said this is a verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. So these ones belong to the kingdom of darkness, a kingdom in rebellion against God. And as Paul pointed out to the Ephesians, he said, our struggle, it's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And what we need to understand today is that there is a spiritual battle, spiritual warfare going on between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And we don't have time to go into great detail in that this morning, except to say that we have a place in this battle that's taking place. Paul encourages the Corinthians. And he reminds them of these words, that though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Or we could think of Paul's final admonition to the Ephesian church. He said, be strong in the Lord and, and mighty in his power. He said, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. 
so that when the day of evil comes, you may stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then he says, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. It says, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and keep on always praying for all the saints. This spiritual battle that we're reading about in those passages of Scripture that Paul has written, uh, what we are reading, you know, this spiritual battle is the backdrop to the suffering the Christians in Thessalonica had been experiencing, all right? In their suffering, the enemy was at work to present, prevent the good news from being heard by those who were dead in their sins and in their transgressions and to shipwreck the faith of those who have been made alive in Christ. This is what was happening in Thessalonica and is what happens today in our own world too as people move from darkness to light. There is opposition that comes. And it might come from family who rejects you or mocks you or ridicules you. It could come from friends who turn their back on you uh, or uh, give you a hard time because of what you believe uh, and how you talk about Jesus and how your life has been changed. Uh, these things come from this spiritual warfare, this battle that's going on with the enemy seeking to do everything he can to derail, to shipwreck the faith of God's people and to prevent people from hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. We see that in our schools. It used to be you could do the Lord's Prayer in school and you could talk about uh, Christian things. You cannot do that in many school divisions now. There's opposition that's arisen. People don't want to hear it. They don't want others to have to hear it either. And so they seek to oppose the good news going forth. A little bit of a picture of what the Thessalonians were experiencing, except they experienced it to a great, uh, much greater extent. Totally went off uh, track here. Uh, let me figure out where I should be at. Uh, the kingdom of darkness was not pulling any punches in the persecutions it brought against the Thessalonian church. According to chapter 1, it was in spite of severe suffering that they'd welcomed the message with jo the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 2, Paul writes that it was with the help of our God that we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. In chapter 2, verse 14, he again makes mention of the suffering the Thessalonians were experiencing. And then here in chapter 3, the persecution and suffering that had come upon them again takes center stage, and it makes something abundantly clear. And what it makes abundantly clear is this. Trials are inevitable in this world. In fact, Scripture reveals that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Look again at the second half of verse 3. Paul's writing in regards to the trials they've been facing. He says uh, that they knew quite well that they were destined for these trials. How did they know? Because Paul had told them. Paul and Timothy and Silas had shared with them what it could cost them to live for Christ. Do you remember where the, uh, Paul was before going to Thessalonica? He'd been in Philippi. And if you remember what happened in Philippi is that he was flogged, he and Silas were flogged, and they were imprisoned. And so when they arrived in Thessalonica, they bore the marks of that persecution on their bodies. So keep in mind what being flogged was. You'd be tied to a post, 
and they would lash you with 39 lashes, uh, or lash you 39 times, uh, your back would be shredded. Uh, your back of your legs would be shredded. Uh, they would put um, sharp pieces of metal or rock or whatever uh, on the ends of uh, the thongs that were part of the whip, and they would cut into your flesh and gouge. And so this is what Paul and Silas were experiencing. This is how they arrived in Thessalonica. They didn't show up in perfect health. They showed up with joyful hearts, but they showed up with the marks of persecution on their bodies. And so Paul could point to his scars, to his still healing wounds, and say, just so you know, this could happen to you. But then he could also say, but it's worth it. It's hard, it's painful, it's frightening, but it's worth it for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs the afflictions that we've received. And it was in the light of their suffering that Paul sent Timothy to them. We know that Paul had a great longing to be reunited with the Thessalonians. We saw that last week. But we also saw that in some way he was prevented from doing so by Satan. And again, we don't know what that looks like, but in some way, Satan put those roadblocks in his path that he was not able to meet with them in Thessalonica. Uh, when he couldn't go himself, though, he sent Timothy to strengthen and encourage them in their faith so that they would not be unsettled in their trials. Paul's concern was this, that the Thessalonians would turn their backs on God because of the difficult things they'd been living through. And I think most of you could see how that could happen. Because you probably know people, as I do, who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe they've attended church for a year or 10 years or whatever it might be. But when times of trial come, hardship comes into their life, they fall away. Their faith is shipwrecked. They don't have a solid foundation on which to stand. And they struggle to understand how God could allow trial and suffering and hardship in their lives. After all, they're Christians. Doesn't God owe them peace and contentment and prosperity? Well, no, he doesn't. God does not owe us anything. We owe God everything, but God does not owe us anything. And so how do you receive the trials and hardships that come your way? When you're faced with suffering, is your inclination to turn your back on God? Or is it to fall to your knees before him and seek to draw closer to him, to have him speak into your pain and into your suffering and into your heartbreak? Do you ask God not, why has this happened to me? Do you ask, what are you trying to teach me in the midst of this? Do you see God working through the difficult things you face to bring you into increasingly conformity with the character of Christ? You see, the trials and sufferings of God's children are not wasted if we keep our eyes and hearts focused on Jesus Christ. read an article recently. The author was making the point, sharing his story of how he had fallen away from the faith. He used to believe in God, used to worship him, but then his sister got cancer. And he had prayed fervently for her healing, and God had not answered him in the manner that he desired him to. And so when his sister died, he concluded that from his unanswered prayers, God must not exist. But that's not a valid conclusion by any means. And I know several couples that have lost children to accidents over the years. As a parent myself, I cannot think of a greater 
grief than that a parent must feel at the loss of a child, regardless of the age of that child. Each of these families claimed faith in God, but their response to the loss varied greatly. What caused some of those families to find strength, comfort, and encouragement in their faith, even as they were filled with grief and sorrow, while others turned away from God and became bitter and angry, their faith shipwrecked in their despair? What makes that difference? What makes the difference when those you know face hardships and some draw closer to God and some turn away from Him? That's a question that I've considered from time to time. And as I listen to these parents share from the depths of their grief, uh, I began to draw the conclusion that some of the things that make the difference are this. How a person responds is determined in their, by their view of God's sovereignty and their understanding of his character. So those who have a high view of God's sovereignty, that is that they believe that he reigns over the heavens and the earth, that he is at work in history, he's at work in the present day, and who have a deep appreciation of his character. Things like uh, love and grace, justice and mercy, compassion and goodness. They tend to draw closer to God in the face of suffering and sorrow. Those who struggle to believe that God is perfectly good and just and loving. And who don't really believe he's at work in the world today. But that he's distant and far from us. They tend to grow disillusioned with their faith. And they turn their backs on God. Here's the thing. A shallow faith is a fragile faith, uh, and it's easily shattered by the turmoil and suffering of this world. Uh, and so think of a body of water freezing over during the winter. Uh, you get that thin skim of ice that forms. It does not take much pressure to shatter it. You can do so with your finger uh, at one stage, and it cracks and it shatters. But then as the ice gets thicker, as the pressure mounts and it's compressed and built up with each snowfall and so forth, it becomes much difficult. It comes to the point where you can drive a semi-truck across an ice road because the ice is thick enough and strong enough to support it. It's the same with our faith. A shallow faith is a fragile faith, uh, and it's easily shattered by turmoil and suffering. The difference we see, uh, pardon me, the difference in these two things is, is the difference we see between Job and his uh, wife when they were faced with the complete crashing down of their world around them. Because of his high view of God's sovereignty and his deep appreciation of Job's character, Job was able to worship God even in the midst of his sorrow. Remember what he said? He said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. On the other hand, we have Job's wife. She grew bitter and angry. She told, God to, uh, pardon me, told Job to curse God and die. Very different responses to the same situation. There's also another element that comes into play that determines how we bear up under trials and persecutions and suffering. Romans 12, 2 reminds us that we're no longer to be conformed to the pattern of this world. But you and I, we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. In 2 Corinthians 10, 5, Paul urges us to take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So not only does our view of God's sovereignty and our understanding and appreciation of his character impact how we face struggles that come our way, so too does the manner in which we think about those hardships and suffering that we may endure. And our experience and perception of what we may be undergoing can be radically altered as we begin to look at these things through a biblical worldview. And I want to use the example of the apostles in Acts chapter 5 uh, to explain what I'm getting at here. 
In Acts 5, we read how the apostles were, again, they were flogged and they were imprisoned because they were living out their faith. They were sharing the gospel message. People around them were listening. They were coming to faith. Uh, and that uh, enraged the authorities and, and uh, the religious people of their day. Uh, and, and when that happened, they were flogged, they were imprisoned. We might have expected them in those moments to become dejected, to become discouraged, or to be moved to despair by the circumstances that they lived through. We could understand, here they are, they're trying to live this life for God, they're seeing exciting things happening, and then bam, they're being flogged and they're being imprisoned. We could understand, couldn't we, if they uh, no longer wanted to share the word of God after having had such an experience. But that's not what Scripture tells us happened. Instead, Scripture says that when they went on their way, they did so rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering for the disgrace of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy to suffer. That's looking at it through a biblical lens, a biblical worldview. Instead of feeling hard done by, they see God at work in the midst of these things. And when Paul and Silas are flogged and imprisoned in Philippi, we might have expected them to sit quietly in their cells, nursing their wounds. That's not what happened either. Because rather than feeling sorry for themselves or becoming bitter at the treatment they received, uh, we find that they spent their time behind bars doing what? What two things did they do? They were singing and they were praying. So they were praying to God and they were singing hymns, Scripture says. And then Scripture also tells us that the other prisoners were listening to them. So these men took a circumstance that most would have found dispiriting and reframed it from the perspective of a biblical worldview through the lens of Scripture. They'd been commissioned to spread the gospel message. They knew that. Jesus had told them, go make disciples of all nations. In prison, they had a captive audience, if you will, to do just that. And so as they worshiped God, singing hymns, praying to God, they were bearing testimony to the guards and the other prisoners alike. Uh, and as a result, what ends up happening? The jailer and then the jailer's family end up coming to faith. And the one who was the guard at the prison, the, the head guard there, the, the prison administrator, if you will, he comes to faith. He becomes a brother in Christ to the apostles that had been imprisoned and entrusted to his care. Let me ask you this. We've all faced sufferings and hardships and trials. Can you look at those that you've experienced in the past, the ones that have rocked you to the very core of your being? Can you see how God has used that to shape you and mold you? Can you see where God has used that to bring glory to his name, to give you the opportunity perhaps to witness to someone you would have not connected with otherwise? Can you look at those times and discern where God uh, has brought spiritual growth through the troubles you encountered? Or if you're experiencing times of trouble or hardship or suffering in these days, how might you frame your thinking in the context of a biblical perspective? That your perception of them might be transformed uh, as you take every thought captive to the glory of God. See, the reality is this. We usually don't have much of a say in the difficult things that come our way. They come upon us unexpectedly. They catch us unaware. But we do have a say in how we respond to the circumstances we find ourselves in. So when struggles come our way, instead of asking, why did this happen to me? What difference would it make if we were to ask ourselves, 
What is God trying to teach me? How is God moving in the midst of these things? Instead of seeing our circumstances as punishment from God, what difference would it make to realize that God permits times like these to help us grow and become more like Christ, to understand that God is refining us through these difficult trials that we are encountering? Or instead of believing ourselves to be abandoned and forsaken when difficulties come, what difference would it make to how you face these things if we understood uh, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose? And instead of turning inward and isolating ourselves in our pain and sorrow as we often tend to do, what difference would it make to look outwards, to focus on helping others and being as the hands and feet of Jesus to them? These are questions we ought to consider. In verse 3, Paul tells the Thessalonians that they as believers were destined for trials such as what they now faced. And he wanted them to know. And he wanted them to take comfort in the realization that the suffering they were experiencing did not escape God's notice. God was still sovereign. He was still in control. He was still at work in the moments of these, their lives just as he is at work in ours. Now, Paul had such a longing for the Thessalonians and such a concern for their well-being that he was willing to make a sacrifice on his part in order that they might be encouraged and strengthened in their faith, that they might be blessed. So think of this. Nearly every time we read of the, the disciples going out, the apostles going out and doing ministry, uh, going, traveling to different communities, sharing the gospel, uh, on almost every occasion, they do so in the company of at least one other believer. So when it comes to Paul, uh, he had various companions throughout the, his travels. Uh, we find that uh, people like Timothy and Silas and Barnabas and Epaphras and Gaius and Epaphroditus and Luke, among others, served alongside him in the ministry. And we know that Barnabas brought John Mark with him on his ministry journey. And we know how important this companionship was to Paul because he makes mention of it in Scripture of how much he valued and appreciated those who served faithfully with him. Because not only were they an encouragement to him and a joy to him, but during those times when he was imprisoned, they became his lifeline, if you will. Uh, companions like these were able to help him out to keep him in touch with the churches that he had planted. Listen to how he speaks of Timothy in his letter to the Philippians. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because a son with his father, he served with me in the work of the gospel. See, Timothy was a very highly valued companion to Paul. He was a comfort and encouragement to him. But Paul is now willing to send Timothy, his last companion with him in Athens. There was no one else with him to minister, to encourage, to support, to come alongside at this point. Timothy is the last one, and he sends him to the Thessalonian believers that they might be blessed and built up in their faith as they did life together. And while it's true that Paul would have been poor for Timothy's absence, it's just as true that the Thessalonians would be blessed by his presence. And here's a challenge I want to present to you. How far are we willing to go to encourage and to strengthen our fellow believers in the faith as they go through difficult times? Are we willing to sacrifice something important to us? And that could be anything. 
It could be our time, our resources, whatever it may be. Are we willing to sacrifice these things that someone else might be blessed? A brother or sister might be blessed, encouraged, and built up in their faith. Are we willing to step into the messiness of someone's life and offer them some form of support that they may experience the love and the grace of God in their time of need? See, we can all do with encouragement from time to time, can't we? And there are moments when our faith is weak and we could do with someone coming along and reminding us of God's truth, walking alongside of us, strengthening us in our faith. And that process doesn't always have to be costly. Sometimes it might be. It doesn't always have to be. It can be as simple as a card, a phone call, a kind word, a simple act that lets others know they're cared for, they're appreciated, or we understand that they're going through a difficult time. And what may seem as a simple thing to you and I may be a life-changing blessing for someone else. Glenn Oliver, don't know him personally. It's an, uh, an article that I came across. Glenn Oliver sat at the Tim Hortons uh, window drive through uh, one day and decided to do a random act of kindness. So when he got up to the window, he paid for his order, but he also paid for the order of the person in the car behind him. Then he went on his way and he thought nothing more of it. A few days later, his wife showed him an article in the local newspaper. It was written anonymously, but it spoke of the kindness that someone had shown in paying for the author's order from the local Tim Hortons. In comparing the details laid out in the newspaper with his own activities that day, Glenn realized that he was the one the anonymous author was talking about. But what he couldn't have known at the time was that his random act of kindness saved a man's life. You see, the man in line behind him that day was buying his final meal. Now, I don't know why you'd get that from Tim Hortons, but each to their own. He planned to take his own life after he finished that meal. That, that's what he'd set out to do that day, to go to Tim Hortons, get his coffee and donut or whatever, and then he was going to end his life. Because to him, life seemed pointless and empty. He couldn't see any reason to go on. But when he pulled up to the window to pay, and found out that a complete stranger had paid his debt for him, he struggled to understand why someone would do that for someone they didn't even know. And this random act of kindness, something so simple, moved him so deeply and encouraged him so much that he didn't go through with his plans of suicide. You know what he did instead? Instead, he went out and found a way to bless someone else, to do a random act of kindness for someone he didn't know, that they might be encouraged as he had been encouraged. And, and from what I understand, he's continued to do that day after day in the time that's followed. His life had been saved. His entire outlook transformed by do, someone doing something encouraging for him. And if God can use something like that, which we might say takes place uh, out of the context of Christianity, how much more can God do through those uh, people whose hearts are set on him? and who desire to honor him and represent him well uh, to those around them. God can do amazing things, brothers and sisters, far more than we can ask or imagine. And it can be through the littlest simple word that we speak or the kind gesture that we make to someone else. In Paul's case, Timothy returned to him with good news. The Thessalonians remained steadfast in their love and faith. This, in turn, was an encouragement for Paul as he wrestled with his own distress and the persecution that he was experiencing. One final challenge as we close this morning. 
And I want you to deeply consider this. And not just consider it, how can we put this into action in the coming days? And it's this, how can we encourage one another in the days of this week? And maybe you know someone in this fellowship, and they're going through a difficult time. It doesn't matter what that is or what the cause of that difficulty is. Is there some way that you can come alongside them to support, encourage, to strengthen them in their faith? Is there some way that you can let them know that they're not alone? Can you pray with them? Can you pray for them? Can you write them an encouraging note? Can you remind them of the truths, uh, uh, truth of the God we come to, that he's not forsaken He's not forsaken us. He's not rejected us. He's loved us. He's drawn close to us. He's here present with us in the darkest moments of our lives. How can we support and encourage one another and so build one another up in the faith? I mean, there's so much in this world that can tear us down. We hear these messages uh, through the media, through our entertainment, all these messages that can tear us down. What can we do to build others up? Let's pray. Father God, as we think of your word that we've heard from this morning and Paul's experience, the Thessalonians' experience, uh, and how Paul was willing to sacrifice something precious to him in order that others might be encouraged and blessed, uh, may we have hearts that do likewise. May you grant us eyes to see the need around us, to see, really see, the individual who is maybe hurting today, who maybe just needs to know that God loves them and the people around them haven't forgotten about them. Father, it might be that someone needs to hear uh, that we have forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And you can use one of the brothers or sisters here to come alongside them and share that with them. Father, we don't know how you will use these things in the coming days. We simply know that as we are faithful and as we're open to your leading and we are asking for eyes to see and ears to hear the need that you will help us to see and to hear those things. And your spirit will give us an idea of what we can do to minister to others who are hurting or just need a word of encouragement or who are going through a difficult time or suffering a trial of some sort. May we be a blessing to others as we do so. And may it be pleasing to your heart uh, as we do so as well. We pray that you'd lead us and guide us in these coming days, that your blessing would rest upon us, that we'd be strengthened uh, afresh each new day. And we ask these things to your glory, now and forevermore. Amen.